the Martin Luther King statue reveal and the gasp that was heard around the world. Oh, it's bad. It is bad, and I'm going to describe it to you. Do we have a press problem? Josh Feldman is here to talk about how effective the world press is at increasing anti-Semitism and to help us explain exactly what's going on in Israel's new government. And Dr. Iris Savetsky is here, the plastic surgeon extraordinaire from the Upper East Side. He's going to talk to us about all the nips and tucks and tucks and nips that you can afford. This is Weekly Squeeze. I'm your talented and humble host, Hanala Music, coming at you from the beautiful land of Israel. This is episode 77. I am so excited to be here because I do all the jobs. And without me, we can't have a podcast. I can never be absent. <laughs> no bad days. Whatever kind of day you're having, I can assure you, I can guarantee you that it is not worse than the day that, or the week or the month that Hank Willis Thomas is experiencing right now. And if you don't know who he is, well, then you haven't seen the statue. <laughs> the statue that stopped the internet. A statue that evoked a collective sigh and not a good sigh, a bad sigh. <laughs> the entire world said, what on earth is that? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me explain. You know that concept, you had one job? Well, Hank had one job, and his job was to create a sculpture to be placed in Boston to honor Martin Luther King. That was the entire job. Now, you could only imagine how many people, how many artists would die for that opportunity. So now we are going to draw a design for this statue or whatever, this tribute, and we are going to make it out of copper, and it's going to be ginormous and beautiful. Except that it's not beautiful. It's bizarre. It's essentially Martin Luther King hugging his wife, except they didn't include the heads. So now you only have the embrace, and the embrace is two, four long brown copper arms holding arms. And no matter how you look at it, you can't describe what you see. That's how inappropriate and bizarre this statue is. It defies all logic and reason and and the it i mean it's absolutely hilariously perfectly awful <laughs> it's just so bad that's right and it's such a shame this was such a good opportunity to honor a man who changed the direction that america could have gone in and he just deserved better and it's just absolutely Insane that that happened, and so many people allowed it to happen. I tell you, but we all needed a good laugh. <laughs> I can't repeat the jokes. I cannot repeat the jokes. I can repeat some of the things people said. This is awful, said British rapper Zuby, whoever that is. I mean, people were just horrified. Oh, my favorite tweet. This guy tweets out, I'm calling for a complete and total shutdown of modern art until we can figure out what the hell is going on. And he shows a picture of this copper blob. Oh, it's just so bad. There's no words. <laughs> Should I move on? Or we can continue because it just goes on and on and on. You could lose yourself on Twitter reading people's um, comments and seeing their reactions and I would imagine the art world is furious. Imagine being an art student and being an extremely talented sculptor, an incredible artist, and then seeing this guy, this guy. <laughs> There's a picture of, you gotta, you gotta see. This is just what, this is what it's all about. This is the best stuff of the internet. Um, let's move on. Or should we? I'm just, yes, we're moving on. Okay, first things first. For those of you who are now part of my WhatsApp group, just the heads up. I don't pay attention to what's going on in the WhatsApp group. I don't read the chats. They disappear in 24 hours. Uh, and if somebody tells me that people are speaking not nicely or getting too worked up, well, they're going to have to be kicked out of the chat. So everybody needs to chill and stop taking themselves so seriously. I know that some of you are concerned about the vaccine. Yes, vaccine, no vaccine. I get it. But we all have to speak respectfully and honor each other's voices and respect each other's opinions and stay calm. That's what I've learned over the years when I get worked up, when I'm arguing about something I'm passionate about. I tell myself, Hanala, stay calm. Your head has the answers. 
your emotions don't have to play a role in order to protect your intellectual integrity. In other words, if you are smart and your argument makes sense, you can say it calmly no matter what. And that is 100% absolutely taichacha for myself as well. That's right. All right, my first guest is a fella I met on Twitter who lives in Australia and puts shrimp on the bobby, except it's not shrimp because he keeps kosher and I have a terrible Australian accent. Anyways, Josh Feldman is here. He describes himself as a full-time falafel enthusiast <laughs> and a part-time writer. Uh, he is a writer. He wrote for the Daily Beast, Newsweek, Jerusalem Post, JD Forward, and some Australian paper because he's Australian and I love the Australian accent. Anyway, he's here and he's going to explain to us how the media is responsible for so much of the anti-Semitism that we're seeing and how it's just this vicious cycle. And then we're going to just touch upon what's going on in Israel as far as politics go. And now that we have a new government, everybody seems to be talking about it. So I figured I will put my toe into the conversation and offer you some insight on why the world is obsessed with Israel, why the left-leaning liberal uh, court, high court here in Israel, the Supreme Court, may face some changes now that they have a Haredi government. <laughs> Let's just face the facts. A government that is full of from Jews who have an agenda and the left-leaning Supreme Court, well, they also have an agenda. So whenever there are two opposing agendas, well... There is political warfare. So we're going to see how that unfolds. Last night, 80,000 people came out in Tel Aviv for some peaceful protesting. No one was hurt. No one did anything wrong. It was lovely Jewish democracy, except for some Palestinian flags that I thought were illegal. I thought those were banned from the public square. And last night they were literally seen in the public square, in Robin Square. So I'm a little confused. Maybe that law hasn't gone into effect. But... I was not happy to see that. No Palestinian flag should wave anywhere in Israel because that flag is a flag of war. So when they get their hummus together, they can make a new flag and we can all live happily ever after. All right. So without further ado, Josh Feldman. All right, Josh, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for having me. Pretty cool. So you're in Australia. I am. We're not exactly close to Israel. Uh, I think it takes us 25 hours to get there, a bit far away. It takes it takes 25 hours to get anywhere from Australia. I have an aunt and uncle there, but actually I had two aunts and uncles there. And all I know is that you leave one day and you arrive wherever you're going two days later. That's true. <laughs> Except if you, Hawaii. If you, well, I don't know about Hawaii, but if you fly from Melbourne to LA, you'll land in LA before you left Melbourne. Go That's figure. wild. And way over my pay grade, so don't ask me to figure that one out. All right, but... What I do love to talk about is the Jews and where they are um, being subjected to anti-Semitism and how we can combat it. So you wrote a great article in the Jewish press that I listened to. I try to listen to my articles. helps me multitask. And you explain how the media, the world media, is complicit in anti-Semitism in a number of ways. They're negligent in covering anti-Semitic attacks. There's a number of examples of that. Um, they outright victimize Jews, you know, blaming us for anti-Semitism. I mean, do you remember that New York Times um, cartoon of Bibi as a dog Bibi on a the leash? Dog. I mean, that was outrageous. They're obsessed with Israel. New York Times just wrote 100,000 words on the Hasidim alone in their paper over the last, you know, six months. Can you please explain what this phenomena is, what you see on the ground and what, you know, what we're in for? Look, it, it, it's a big question. And I think first and foremost, it certainly depends on where you are. I, I, I'm going to assume that a lot of your listeners um, hang around in North American circles. In Australia, it's quite different. But in the US in particular, you know, I, I kind of like to think back to critical race theory, you know, very simplistically, you know, this idea that a lot of the foundations on which our society built fundamentally racist, right? Going back to, you know, kind of European colonialism. But ironically, one of the things that it often misses out is what's the oldest hatred in the world? Anti-Semitism. We don't often talk about it, but at least in my opinion, anti-Semitism is baked into Western DNA. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person who lives in our society is an anti-Semite, but after 2,000 years of religious demonization of the Jews, of separating them, of pogroms, of then racializing them, culminating in the Holocaust, right? 2,000 years of that, it doesn't simply go away. 
overnight. I think, and, and also the evidence is clear. <laughs> the evidence is in. <laughs> the, 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 the evidence is in, if, if ever we needed to look at the evidence um, to really see what's going on here. So I, I think that's very important to understand that when we look at the media, there's already very often, wherever we hang around, there's this very subtle anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic ideas that's really baked into it. So if we look at an institution like the New York Times, um, and, you know, oh, I think his name's Ashley Rinsberg, who wrote a really great book about it that um, I'm yet to read, but I've heard amazing things about it. So if if we look at the media, I, I think it really just does come down to that, that there's this very subtle, sometimes not so subtle trend of anti-Semitism. Like, for example, when, you know, there was the, sh the shootings in New Jersey by those black Hebrew Israelites and some of the reporters were suggesting that the reason that the shooting occurred was because of real estate dispute, because Jews were moving in and hiking up the house prices. Because then Dara Horn put it so well, because, you know, of course, when Jews are hiking up house prices, the reasonable thing is to go and murder their children. So sometimes we now know how dangerous we, we now know how dangerous that that black group is, that black Israelites are. There are, I mean, officially terrorists. They're designated as terrorists in the United States. Well, no, but the truth is, I should I should take that back. I don't know if they're designated as terrorists, but their their creed, their whatever they're doing over there is definitely one of violence and, uh, you know, gear, uh, addressed to the Jews. So. And it's terrifying. We saw the march outside. I think it was when possibly Jalen, sorry, Kyrie Irving's outside of Brooklyn Nets game under um, that, that massive march of black Hebrews. It's, it's terrifying. I'm, I'm very happy we don't have that in Australia. But I think a lot of the media, a lot of the subtle anti-Semitism, you might even call them microaggressions against the Jewish community and against Israel that we see in the media. I think a lot of that just comes down to the fact that anti-Semitism is baked into Western DNA. And sometimes people, you know, they can't they can't control us like when the new york times writes that al-aqsa mosque is a holy site to muslims and it's also significant to jews right forgetting that it's the holiest site in judaism where two temples stood right where so many jews myself included won't go up there because we don't think that we're holy enough to go up there right it's an important site to jews so i really think at the end of the day it just comes down to the fact that anti-semitism really is baked into western dna you see it come out on the you far keep left saying, you keep saying western yeah. dna are you trying to exclude uh, Australia or I'm saying isn't it a, a, about our ethnicity and you know not just about our location like what's the matter where the Jews are yeah it, it's a good point when I say Western DNA I guess I'm talking about you know kind of Western Christian societies you know historically speaking so America predominantly you know originally comes from European settlers Australia you, you know obviously indigenous populations as well as well in America we come from European settlers come from the British um, European Christian societies as well when I talk about Western DNA that's what I talk about um, at the same time, you know, you still interestingly see quite high rates of anti-Semitism in countries where there aren't necessarily Jews um, and that haven't really necessarily been exposed as much to, you know, this European Christianity. Okay, so back to the, the fact that it's baked into the cake. Yeah, so I, I, think th I think that comes out often in the media. We had, we maybe to try cut a long story short, uh, we have a, a Sydney festival. Sydney's one of um, the main capital cities in Australia. Each year it puts on a festival. It's just, you know, a real great arts festival, musicians, dancers, um, what have you. Very big festival. It happens in January, February each year. Last, oh, it, yeah, last year, so at the start of 2022, um, a few months before the festival, it came out that the Israeli embassy in Australia had donated, had given $20,000 to the festival so that they could bring out an Israeli choreographer, Ohad Narin, I think is his name, and so that he could, you know, choreograph one of his very famous dancers which really is unbelievable and anti-israel activists really kind of got kicked into full swing um you know saying that by having israeli government funded by having israeli government funded dance it's no longer a safe space for palestinians and for muslims and arabs or for pro-palestinian activists writing opinion pieces you know saying that the apartheid state of israel you know they can't have any sort of funding there because then it's creating this racist environment that doesn't make us safe and the media coverage, a lot of the media coverage kind of acted as if, you know, this was like a legitimate debate to be had out, you know, whether or whether or not, you know, the Democrats should pack or the Republicans should pack the Supreme Court with judges who align with their political is as if this is some sort of, you know, legitimate debate to be had. Does a $20,000 funding from the Israeli embassy all of a sudden mean that people have to boycott the entire event? And oh, they exacerbate the situation time and time again. I mean, it's just, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, they have such a knack for it. They literally stir the pot. It's, it's just, it's outrageous. 
Yeah, they, it's all, it's all, it's almost sometimes as if they're waiting for the bait. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want to get surprised each time. I guess I'm shocked each time it happens, but I, I wouldn't say that I'm surprised because I've just, you know, become used to it by now. Yeah. Well, uh, listen, we're facing a serious crisis at this point. I mean, one in four American Jews have been victims of anti-Semitism in the past year. Is that correct? Forty percent of Americans, yeah, think that Israel's treating Palestinians like the Nazis treated the Jews. Four out of ten Americans think that, according to the ADL. That's just and the, absurd. And the worst, it's literally believing a lie that the press manufactured in front of our eyes. I mean, I remember when this narrative would have been was laughed at. You know, when I was growing up, who would have believed for one second that the Palestinians were the victims? It was like the Jews are the victims from the Holocaust trying to recover and, and come back from it. How dare you subject us to violence again? But the only one not surprised are the Jews because we know their intentions. And it's just amazing how they've literally managed to brainwash the entire world into believing something, a manufactured lie by the press. And I'm living it out in real time. And all of these woke triggered. I mean, did you see the demonstration, the Palestinian demonstration in that on that college campus? Where was it? The University of Michigan. Michigan, of course, you know. Yeah, the globalizing intifada. Could you imagine if my daughter, my 18 year old Jewish daughter was near them? I'd be terrified for her. I live here in Israel and that is not a safe space. That was not a safe space. Sorry. No, <laughs> Go no. on. And I, I think conversely, you know, just imagine, I don't, I don't know what the equivalent would be, but if we can take the Jewish equivalent of globalizing intifada and imagine if, you know, um, a bunch of Hillel, if Hillel organized a march at, I don't know, Yale University saying, you know, and the chant was kill all Palestinians or something like that. Can you try and imagine the coverage that CNN and that MSNBC and that the New York Times would give that? But when anti-Israel activists go on university campuses calling to globalize the intifada, which is a call for genocide, because if the intifada is blowing up buses on King George, what does, because it has Jewish children, what does it mean to globalize that? It's a call to genocide Jewish people around the world. And what media coverage has that gotten in the United States? Yeah, well, at this point, um, we have our work cut out for us. I think it's very important for people on podcasts and, you know, Jewish writers and on Twitter to constantly, constantly continue to push out the narrative because the people seeking the truth will find it. And there are a number of people who have to believe that there is something a little muddled and fuddled here and that the, the story doesn't exactly smell fresh. So hopefully people are doing their own homework and we continue to present them the true information or the right side of the story. Um, but it's tricky because everybody just says, well, that's your opinion. That's your truth. That's your reality. And it's like, it's impossible to get through to people. So that's why um, I'm concerned. That's why I am concerned. Um, but now it seems like there's this new news cycle where everybody is talking about the Israeli government. Because now that we finally have established a government and we can all just chill for two minutes here in the land of Israel. Everybody's attacking us from all sides. Like, why is the world obsessed with Israeli politics? These are intrapersonal uh, politics about, you know, how many bathrooms we have in Tel Aviv, public bathrooms. Like, what does the, the world care? Look, often often people put it down to anti-Semitism. I, I think initially, I think the initial understanding, we have to take a bit of a step back. We have to recognize that the land of Israel, whatever you want to call it, is holy not just to Jews, but also to Muslims and Christians. Now, if you if you live in the US, if you live in Canada, if you live in France, in the UK, in Australia, your society is dominated by people who don't necessarily identify as Christian, but historically they would have. So now that's 2,000 years of, again, just like how I said, anti-Semitism is baked into Western DNA. So is the idea of this holy land of Israel baked into Western DNA. So I think that a lot of the focus on Israel initially comes from that. Now that you have that intense focus of it, you know, the media, obviously people on the ground are going to be paying a lot more attention to it. And then the problem becomes, well, now that they're focusing a lot on it, what kind of coverage are they going to give it? And that's when we begin to see problematic things such as, you know, when there's a war between Israel and Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza. The press is very happy to show all the Palestinian suffering, which absolutely should be shown because it is suffering and it is horrible and is really devastating, but they're not so interested in finding out why that suffering is. And they're not particularly interested in the fact that Israel is doing all that it can to stop 
innocent civilian deaths in Gaza. So I think that's where you get the problem. That, I'm not surprised that they're really interested and they want to know what's happening in it because it is an area that's holy to all three religions. And if I live in Australia, that's most of the that's most of the Australian population. But then it becomes problematic when they start, you know, with all these anti-Semitic microaggressions that we see in the news all the time. Now, this government specifically, I, I, I don't know if I blame them. I, I have to be honest. Um, some of the coverage isn't necessarily fair, but I think when the most of the Jewish world, it seems, is really freaking out over this government, whether or not, you know, in support or against, but, you know, we're seeing the rhetoric if you look at the headlines every single day. End of democracy. You know, the president of Israel's Supreme Court is saying that, it's go- that this government's going to hit a fatal blow to democracy. People in the government. 80,000 people came out. 80,000 people came out last night. 80,000 people in protests in Tel Aviv at Bima Square. People are people all around the Jewish world are really, really worried about this government. Um, People who are in support of this government are also saying horrible things about the opposition. So I I don't think we should be surprised that the media is so interested in what's going on here, because it also does have the ability to drastically impact the region. I know, but don't. Don't people believe at this point that Israel could manage just fine taking care of themselves? I mean, look around the world. There are so many examples of leaders that have absolutely plowed their countries into the ground. Like, why don't people trust that Israel and the Jewish people, I think they do trust, though. I do know that, I do believe they think that if they left us alone, we'd be able to figure it out. But there's just this obsession with not leaving us alone. Look, there's definitely an obsession with not leaving us alone. And I think there's also something to the fact that, you know, people have been warning about, you know, these death blows to Israel um, for, for, for many, many years. I was on a program a co- until a couple of weeks ago in Israel for year 10 students. I was a madrich on the program. And we had an Arab-Israeli speaker come speak to us. He lives in East Jerusalem, but also has a home in Yericho in the West Bank, a Palestinian city. And these are 16-year-old kids, so he's giving them kind of rudimentary knowledge. And he, he says that Israel has two options now. It's standing, you know, at, a, at, at an impasse. It can either give all the Palestinians in the West Bank rights and become a democracy, sorry, and, and, and retain its status as a democracy, or it can annex the West Bank and become an apartheid state. Now, to a 16-year-old, that might sound quite distressing, but if you to anyone who knows the history of the conflict, that's something that people have been saying for decades. Tom Friedman wrote an article some 20 years ago in the New York Times warning something along those similar lines. So people have been warning, you know, if Israel doesn't do this, it's going to be the end of Israel for years and years and years. People say that the occupation isn't sustainable. I don't know if it is, if it's whether or not it's sustainable. I'm not going to make that prediction, but it's been sustained in in one form or another for 50, for essentially 50 years now, for 56 years, I think, as of the coming June. So people certainly like to warn of Israel's demise. Um, I certainly seem to think that the warnings this time, I wouldn't say of Israel's demise, but the warnings of what's at risk here have more merit to them. But I think that we also need to- Can you name one or two, can you name one or two that concerning ones, just for my audience to get a feel of what we're talking about? Oh, as as in concerns that we're facing today? No, the policies, yeah, well, the policies that the right-wing government might implement that can be the end of days <laughs> or so yeah. destructive or create a civil war, which seems to be on people's lips. Look, so I, 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 don't, I don't know if I'd go so, if I'd go as far to say that, you know, we're facing an end-of-day scenario, but I think one thing that very much concerns me is this override clause that the coalition is talking about, and that is essentially, again, this, this is what they're talking about. It hasn't been passed into law yet. Um, they might introduce it as legislation and then it might be changed before it gets passed into law. We don't know. But this what they're talking about, the override clause. One second. Even before that, explain to people what the Supreme Court and the religious issue is here. So, and I, I read a really good piece by Yair Aslan and Haaretz today about this. The Supreme Court, in a nutshell, a couple of the issues is that one, a lot of people on the right view it as an activist court. Um, they say, well, you know, you're a court, you're supposed to be impartial, but you're really just, you know, a bunch of left-wing judges who are kind of activists in disguise. Now, that's okay, but then don't pretend that you're a court and that you're impartial and you, that you're looking after um, justice in Israel. And another issue um, is that a lot of Israelis don't see themselves represented in the court. Whether or not, you know, whether or not it's true, a lot of Israelis, particularly Mizrahim, um, religious Jews, they don't necessarily see themselves represented in the court that they view to be part of this, you know, liberal elite establishment of, of Ashkenazi elite, going back to 
the the establishment of the state. Now, wh- whether or not that's true, a lot of Israelis feel that way, um, p- particularly on the right. And so now, what you have now is is legal is judicial reforms, which a lot of people, which some people on the right have been advocating for for years. A lot of them are now on the table. Um, some, I think, are welcome. I'm not, I'm not a legal expert, but some I think are definitely welcome. Some I think are far more problematic, and it, I think it's really a question of which ones end up getting passed. Right. Well, they're still in the preliminary conversation about this. Nothing's really been um, set or you know put out there for the public to dissect yet. But it does look like it's going to be a bumpy road because all eyes are on BB and um, all eyes are on the Middle East, and always have been and always will be on Israel. Um, any last thoughts on? what people listening can either look out for as far as opportunity to push back, maybe represent or speak up. I know that people just don't know what to do and they feel very overwhelmed. So what does your average person do in the face of all this and where they can find you and follow up on you and hear your deep, wise thoughts on all things important? Well, I don't, I don't know if I have any deep or any wise thoughts, but um, I, can, I, I can answer that first. They, they, they can look me up on Twitter. I'm Josh R., uh, for Ryan, I'm Feldman. Um, as, as for what people can do, I, I, I think there's one thing in particular that hasn't gotten anywhere near enough coverage in the mainstream press, and particularly about this election, and that's what actually caused Ben Gur and Smotrich to get so many votes. If we go back to the March 2020 election, Ben Gur's party, Otsmayur, did got 0.042% of the total vote. 0.42%. I think it was some 20,000 in total. This year, his party, which was combined with religious Zionism and Noam, it got over 500,000 votes. They're the third biggest party in the Knesset, just under 11% of, of the electorate. And I, I, it, it's really upsetting to me that there has not been anywhere near enough discussion in the diaspora, Jewish communities, or also just in Western media of what actually caused that rise. And that is that According, this is according to Shin Bet, not me. Um, in 2022, there were over 2,600 terrorist attacks. That was 20% more than 2021, and 80% more than the five-year than the yearly average from between 2016 to 2020. Just think about yes, what impact that has on Israelis. That's already going. That's already after the May riots in 2021, where where is Jewish Israelis watched shuls being burnt down in the Jewish state on their TV. Well, that's the argument Alan Dershowitz makes because he always says, "Listen, you know, Israel is a different, uh, has a different experience than you, and you cannot judge them from your liberal minds in cushy America. It's just not something you can do." But the world insists on doing that. Um, but as you said, because there's so much conversation happening within the Jewish communities, and there is, there's a ton. I mean, if you go on Twitter, every second guy has an opinion on the Israeli government. It's like. You know, my head is spinning, honestly. But at the end of the day, as an Israeli, I do have some skin in the game. Um, I'm still concerned that they can't seem to get hair lice out of kids' heads, but that's a separate conversation. (laughs) Um, The 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 high-tech nation. Yeah, the high-tech nation, exactly. Uh, But yeah, I mean, listen... it it, uh, it's it's a roller coaster, and I'm on for the ride. Like, who could predict what's going to me? Only God. And a, few pe- and, and a few people on Twitter, of course. Of course. you got to stay on Twitter. Somebody's got to keep you on Twitter. Josh Feldman, thank you so much. We will have you back again. Stay safe out there. Thank you. This week's episode of The Weekly Squeeze has been brought to you by Israel 365. This week, I planted a tree in Israel thanks to Israel 365. And now so can you. You can have a tree here in Israel planted in your name, in your child's name, in your parents' name, in anyone's name, really. You can plant trees for your entire family and know that you now have roots in Israel, all because of the weekly squeeze. So head over to my show notes, click on the link, and you can see yourself. You can buy one tree, five trees, ten trees, 200 trees, as many as you'd like, because this piece of land, and I saw it with my own eyes, it needs fresh new trees to replace the burnt ones, the ones that were scorched due to some unfortunate forest fires we had in the past years here in Israel. So be a part of the change, plant a tree in the name of a loved one, and set your roots down here in the land of Israel and help the community of Shoresh reforest the hills of Jerusalem 
I mean, it's amazing. You can come to Israel and have a picnic underneath the trees that you planted. I love it. Couldn't think of anything more beautiful to gift yourself, a friend, a relative, or a loved one. Head over to my show notes. Click on the link and help reforest Israel's beautiful land. Today's the day. Click on the link so they know I sent you. Did you think I was going to let you go without venting about the reform movement? (laughs) I am. Relax. But I just wanted to mention that I saw a disturbing report today. The report was produced by the Center for Immigration Policy here in Israel. And the numbers are very alarming. 77,000 people immigrated to Israel last year. And the majority of them were not Jewish. That is crazy. That is absolutely crazy. That is not good. So now... There is plans under consideration by the new government to nullify this amendment so we can reduce non-Jewish immigration by 85%. That sounds good to me. I got to tell you guys, I have been on Twitter talking about who is a Jew and who's not a Jew for the last few days. There are so many people who think they are Jewish who are not Jewish. It's alarming. Honestly, it is alarming. Just one person after the next who's like, I am 100% Jewish. My grandfather is Jewish. My husband is 100% Ashkenazi. We are raising a atheist Jewish child, and I am part of the tribe. And I'm just like, no, you're not. You are literally not halakhically Jewish. And I have people arguing with me all day, like, how could you? What do you mean, how could I? You can't identify with the Jew because that's what you feel like doing. You can't convert into Judaism without halacha. I mean, you can't, this is not a free-for-all. So, yeah, for me, this this is concerning. Israel is a Jewish state, and we are not looking for it to be a majority of anything besides Jewish. And the fact that so many immigrants and migrants are filling up this land is concerning to me. And I'm very glad the government is going to do something about it. That's right. All right, next interesting story. This caught my eye because my neighbor is British, and I'm just looking for something to make fun of her for. (laughs) Not that there's a shortage. Love you, Abigail. Okay, so on Sunday, Israeli health officials, they lifted a 24-year ban on British blood donations. And I did not know this. I did not know that the British were not allowed to give blood in Israel. Apparently, this ban has been in place since 1999, since mad cow disease in Britain. I did not know this. Now, what is mad cow? Mad cow is bovine, spongy form, encephalopathy. It's a fatal neurological disease, and humans can get it. So they had a ban from anyone coming from or immigrants or tourists from France, Ireland, and Portugal to give blood here in Israel. Anyway, the ban was lifted. I guess mad cow is not a threat anymore. We're too busy focusing on COVID and waking up to the vaccine. Good morning, Kasha. Um, but basically, British could give blood again. The Israeli Medical Center, the Israeli Emergency Medical Service and Blood Bank, stated that they are happy to announce that the day has come that they can accept blood donations from these countries. I was actually reading a book this week. Hang on, let me grab it. Struggling Over Israel's Soul. Highly recommend this book by Elazar Stern. He is an IDF general, and he wrote a book about 10 years ago about his controversial moral decisions. And some of this just blew my mind. But he does share in the book that Israel has one of the most well, the IDF specifically has one of the world's most well-stocked blood banks in the world. So that is pretty cool. I'm pretty sad if you think about it. But anyways, let's stay positive. So I saw a picture last night of a full house in England. I believe it was in London where Chaya Kogan and Brecha Jaffe performed. There was a whole like little controversy about the Rabbanim in England who didn't want the girls to go to the concert because they're going to be exposed to social media. So they put out some advertisements and flyers and then somebody argued or somebody suggested or said or claimed or accused, rather, that the signatures were forged and that a number of those rabbis actually didn't sign such a thing. Bikitzer created a whole conversation, and the good news is that Bracha and Chaya performed last night in London to a sold-out-from-crowd, and I think that's phenomenal. And it wasn't a small theater. I'm talking about a massive Broadway show-style theater, like multi-tiered, multi-floors. So that is really nice. I am always happy when positive things are happening in the Jewish world that reflect well on Jewish women. And I always say, it's not from women in your faces. I'm not looking for from women to be in anyone's faces, but I am looking for them to be able to perform in the right environment, in a professional environment, so that the girls, the Jewish girls, can be entertained and inspired 
and treat it out to a wonderful experience. Every human being deserves to have a live concert experience and be close to their favorite singers. I mean, every human being is entitled to that. It's a beautiful, meaningful experience when done right. And Bracha and Chaya certainly do it right. I did it right. And I never had a bad experience. I always had positive experiences. And I sang for Satmar. And I sang for Tosh. And I sang for Babiv. And I sang for Beis Yaakov. And I sang for Kamadans. And I sang for Shluchim. And nobody ever complained. Because when you do it right... Uh, it's it, it works out. So I'm certainly not going to speak out against Rabbanim that I don't know or do know, but I am glad that this concert was a smashing success. All right, my next guest is Dr. Ira Savetsky. And you might be asking yourself, Ira, don't you mean Lizzie? No, I don't mean Lizzie. I mean Lizzie's husband, who is a plastic surgeon. I got in touch with him because I have been wondering about plastic surgery lately. I'm seeing more and more talk about it on social media. I actually saw... Dr. Savetsky talking about how buckle fat removal is trending, which is basically fat removal from people's cheeks to make them look, I guess, their faces more chiseled and narrow and thinner and like the Kardashian, basically. So people are getting that kind of surgery done on their face. And Dr. Savetsky wanted to explain. So I thought to myself, well, what other surgeries are people getting on their faces? Is this popular? Is this happening more and more? Um, And I'm just living in Israel in a bubble. Is there anything that we can possibly do to improve our looks? Should we improve our looks? What if we are at that age that, well, an eye lift giveaway is looking pretty good right about now. I mean, we're entitled to a little nip and tuck if it fits into the budget. So I thought I'd invite Dr. Savetsky to share what he knows on the subject. He's a popular Jewish Manhattan socialite married to, oh, you know, Lizzie Savetsky, who's practically the queen of Instagram. So without further delay, her king, Dr. Ira Savetsky. Dr. Iris Savetsky, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. All right. So the pros and cons of plastic surgery was not a conversation that my bubby was having in the shtetl, to say the least. But here we are in a modern world where we have these advances in technology, modern medicine, celebrities, social media. It's all played a role in the increasing amount of procedures that Jewish women and men are electing to have. So who better to talk about it with than Dr. Ira Savetsky? I'm glad you're here. Um, you are a, practic- a practicing plastic surgeon. You're also a practicing Jew. <laughs> so that's a good combination. So let's jump right in. Question number one I have for you. When it comes to plastic surgery and Jewish law, I know there are various opinions about you know surgery that's purely for the sake of improving one's looks. As a Jewish surgeon... Is that something that you have to take in consideration? Are there certain procedures that you can't do because of your faith? What has your been? What's been your experience um, as far as that goes? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting points that you bring up. Um, I think that in any Jewish or not Jewish, you you want to find out what people's motivations are for having plastic surgery, and you know, there are a lot of ethical considerations regardless of your faith, you know, so you always want to understand why people are seeking to have surgery. And, you know, people that are seeking to have surgery to whether it be to save their marriage or to get a job promotion, you know, those are always going to be red flags. And those are people that you're not going to want to operate on. Doing plastic surgery for someone else is never the right answer. So it really has to be something that you want to do. And and you always want to just have a conversation with the patient to see what their motivations and their expectations are. That's actually fascinating because I read that Rev, Mo- Rev Moshe Feinstein, when he was approached and asked if plastic surgery is okay, the um, scenario he was presented was a, a woman who wanted a date and, and she, she needed a nose job or she felt that would make her more attractive. And for that reason, because her nose caused her emotional distress because she wasn't attractive enough and wasn't comfortable to date, he allowed that he, he allowed rhinoplasty. So to me, that's actually f- interesting that you say, don't do it for someone else. Uh, but according to the halacha, it was allowed if she's dating, trying to catch a man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's a very complex scenario because um, on the one hand, you're saying she's doing it to to date someone, but it sounds like she's having her own self-confidence issues 
from it. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of factors when we're talking about someone like that. So, you know, I don't know what your uh, background is, your upbringing is, but, you know, someone could have been bullied for having a large nose. And, you know, so there could be uh, some type of trauma from growing up that we don't know about it. So if someone is feeling rejected after going out with a boy, that may be the first thing that comes to their mind. They're like, oh, he probably doesn't like me because of my nose, which it, it may or may not have anything to do with that. Right. So, But it ties into this uh, pre-existing self-esteem issue. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a lot of layers to unravel when it comes to that. So I wonder what Ramosha Feinstein would have been you know, what his response would have been if she didn't say that she had sort of insecurities related to that. Right. Well, there's a lot of conversation on it. When you went to medical school, was there any any component of the halachic issue that was discussed? Well, obviously not in medical school, but with people in your lives or between other Jewish plastic surgeons? Yeah, I don't think there's, you know, in general, you know, a lot of halacha is based on what was known at the time of the Gemara. So, you know, even there's a big halacha debate as to what constitutes death, whether it's brain dead or, or, or when the heart stops. So there's a lot of things to consider when you're talking about organ donation. So I think that modern day rabbis sort of have to evolve to what we know in terms of science for today. Uh, but yeah, there's no there's no rule book, you know, and when it comes to halacha, you know, I'm not a rabbi. So every Jewish person has to consult with their local rabbinic authority that they're comfortable with. You know, everyone has sort of their own ethical standards. You know, I have patients that will will ask their rabbi sort of get their blessing before they they do a surgery. Not necessarily to get permission to do surgery, but to sort of get an endorsement, whether or not it's a good time to do it and things of that nature. Right. Fascinating. Okay. I'm glad to hear it. All right. So plastic surgery has been booming over the last decade from what I hear, thanks to social media. And now there's something um, related to Zoom. There was a term I forgot, a Zoom boom, maybe (laughs) you would know more than I would, you know, patients, bring in selfies with their filters on that they want the doctor to see exactly how they want to look. Recently, I saw you discussing this cheek fat removal that's trending online or among celebrities. You know, they're getting these nice um, cut cheek lines. So although it's great for business, does the effect that social media has on women's self-image concern you as an individual and as a parent? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that Uh, Social media has a lot of pluses and minuses. And I think that in general, you know, celebrity influence has been around for a long time, but I think that it spreads even more rapidly with social media. You know, I think there's social media is concerning as a parent for, for many reasons, but, you know, it's one of those things that it's here and it's here to stay. And we sort of have to learn how to work with it and give our kids tools to safeguard them and sort of use it in in a safe manner. And then plastic surgery has has certainly seen a, a, a boom and there's been trends as it relates to uh, social media. And again, it's like, you know, for for me as a surgeon, trends are one thing, but, you know, I'm not here to make someone fit or look like a filter. You know, it, it's my duty to sort of educate patients and to sort of explain to them why or why not, why or why uh, or may not be like a good reason to do a, a sort of surgery or procedure. You know, we just have to adapt as we're given as these new things come along. Right. Well, a lot of things that they say about these filters is how the light hits your face also. So a lot of people, let's say when they were on their Zoom calls, they didn't realize you need a light behind you and like the angle of the camera and suddenly you're seeing your double chin and then you see the recording back. And these are changes you can make like in your office, like you don't need surgery for that. So sometimes you'll have a consultation and you'll be under the impression that something needs to be changed. And somebody like you can say, well, actually your nose is perfectly straight or you have a great chin line. Yeah. And again, I think that goes back to understanding why people are seeking surgery. If they're seeking surgery to like uh, look good in a certain angle while on zoom, you know, I think that's again, taking it back to just sort of education and, and understanding people 
those motivations. Right. So there's always a pl- preliminary conversation or a few of them before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But there's so many examples of plastic surgery gone wrong. I mean, the list goes on and on. Michael Jackson, Joan Rivers, Melanie Griffith, Courtney Cox. I was telling my mother. I mean, she was so beautiful, Monica, and, and she's admitted to overdoing it. Um, Heidi Montag, Mickey Rourke, Donatella Versace. So this is obviously a, a conversation you have in your industry. Plastic surgery addiction exists. It's a behavioral disorder. Do you see that in your practice? And if you do, how do you deal with people suffering from that issue? Well, I think anything in excess is a problem. And it's very important to to tell patients no. And that happens all the time. There, you know, a lot of the people that you mentioned, I would I would argue that, uh, well, some of it's obviously uh, excessive amounts of plastic surgery, but it's also a lot of excessive amounts of filler and non-invasive type of procedures. And I think what we've been seeing a lot recently over the past few years is people doing too much filler and they're getting too much in their cheeks. And I think that's when a lot of people start to look um, like deformed, distorted, yeah. weird. Yeah, I saw a lip. I saw a lip filler. I mean, you could see everything on social media that literally exploded, like from it split. The lip split. I'm sure you've seen these things, but you could push it too far. <laughs> yeah, I, you could push all these things too far, and um, and again, like that's you know, there's plenty of people who will say yes, 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 and you know, those are people that give sort of our industry a bad rep. And a lot of times it's not plastic surgeons. It's, you know, nowadays there's a whole slew of providers that could provide, you know, cosmetic medicine, fillers and uh, Botox. And then there's plenty of non-plastic surgeons that are doing plastic surgery procedures. So, you know, for me, uh, you know, as a board certified plastic surgeon, you know, and the colleagues that I interact with, I, I, I think we're sort of hold ourselves to a higher standard. And, you know, when patients are overdoing it, or they're not realistic, or the things that they want are outside the sort of um, normal spectrum, you know, you just say no, you know, no one's forcing you to operate and no one's forcing you to do anything. So, you know, at the end of the day, these people are going to be walking around and your name is on them. So I don't want someone walking around that that looks um, totally out there. Right. That actually brings me to my next question. It could be terrifying, I would imagine, to alter someone's face knowing that they could be not happy with the results. Uh, I don't know. When when I'm performing the night before the show, I have nightmares about showing up and the sound system's not there. So I'm sure your nightmares have included doing a surgery and the patient wakes up and they're just something that they <laughs> that you didn't plan. So how long, let people know a little bit, how long does it take for someone to see the results of the surgery. I, I, re- I recognize it's not surgery, wake up the next day, your face is changed. So what do people have to understand about the process of, say, a facelift or uh, a rhinoplasty? Yeah, so uh, definitely depends on on the surgery. Um, you know, from s- some things that you'll see. in sur- So we're talking about surgical procedures. So on one end of the spectrum let's say you do like a breast augmentation and you put implants in and, you know, they're obviously going to see a result fairly quickly. You know, the day after surgery, they're going to see their breasts are much bigger. Now, in terms of seeing the results over that, it's as things settle in and the swelling comes down, you know, it's weeks to to months till things sort of totally settle in. For a nose job, you know, if someone has a big bump on their nose, they're going to see that bump gone a week later when the splint comes off. But everything's going to take a little bit of time for things to settle out. So, you know, even with the tip from the nose, the swelling could last for several months, you know, really up to a year even. So, you know, that's all in your preoperative consultation. And again, that's all about having a conversation with the patient and so that they understand that the recovery process, otherwise you're just going to be, you know, they're going to be coming back and they're going to be upset. And, not, and, you know, if you don't have that conversation, they're going to be upset at you at the flip end. And um, so, you know, I have all those conversations before surgery. Right. It's really a process, though. This is not, I mean, surgery takes time to heal and it takes yeah. time for also for your face to settle in, I would imagine. I never had surgery, but I would imagine the the different components, the skin and the, the bone and everything kind of has to like settle. Yeah. You know, there's there's healing and then there's swelling. Healing, I mean, on a microscopic level takes months, but everything would have will appear healed sooner than that. 
assuming that there are no issues. And then swelling could take weeks to months for it to fully resolve. So it's it's definitely a process. Right. So considering, I know this is a big calculation for people, plastic surgery is not cheap. Most insurances don't cover it. There's a lot of deals. <laughs> There's a lot of black market plastic surgeons. People, I've heard people go out of the country for dental work and for plastic surgery. You know, prices that seem to be too good to be true or doctors that are practicing without a proper license or proper education. What are some red flags? Because people might think to themselves, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not rich enough to go to a fancy doctor on the Upper East Side. I'm going to see what I could find in the yellow pages or online. What should people know when they are looking for a plastic surgeon? Yeah. So, I mean, in the States, it's, you know, you want to be looking for someone who's board certified in, in plastic surgery. American Board of Plastic Surgery is sort of the highest standards of, of care. You know, that would be the first thing I'm looking for. Uh, there's There are other uh, certifications out there that are not the American Board of Plastic Surgery. So that's the first thing that I'd be looking for. In terms of going outside the country, you know, every plastic surgeon in the States has seen disasters from outside the country. That doesn't mean that there aren't good plastic surgeons outside the United States. There are some excellent ones, but those are probably not the ones that are, you know, giving you Black Friday deals on on surgery. So you just have to understand that if you're, you know, doing that, you're going to be taking a risk. You know, for me, I, you know, I can never imagine trying to save money on such an important item. So, you know, it's one thing if you're, I don't know, buying a, an, a piece of electronic equipment, but to go under the, go under anesthesia out of the country and go under the knife out of the country seems very scary. Very risky. Yeah. Uh, people do it. Unfortunately, people do it because plastic surgery is not um, affordable for everyone, but basically people should attempt to get the best they could afford. It's obviously going to save them a lot of heartache in the long run. <laughs> but what are yes. what are some of the qualities of a good plastic surgeon? So like when, what is it a bedside manner? Obviously, you said you're at a convention today. Does that mean that you are learning new things about your craft? Like what would you say are the qualities of a good plastic surgeon? You know, one, you got to have the right credentials. So being board certified, you know, being highly trained, being uh, sort of an expertise or specialty in, in something, you know, if you're seeking a nose job, you know, seeking someone who, who does a lot of them, you know, I think that it's, it could be very hard for, for a patient to know who's good and who isn't good. I think the best source of referral, obviously, if, if you know someone who had surgery with that surgeon is sort of going to be the, the best, but it could be very uh, challenging. So, you know, the best thing is to set up a consultation and to sit down and, and, speak with that uh, physician. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's a relationship. So you right. have to feel really comfortable and Go with good your with intuition that. also and just see. If, how yeah, intuition, think. 100%. I mean, there's so many people who come see me who have seen other plastic surgeons and, and they tell me that that they just got a bad feeling when they met with them. Right. So, you know, your intuition plays, you got to have sort of the resume, but you really have to sit down and meet with them. Right. Right. Okay. What are some simple, more simple procedures that someone like you offers that could make a difference that doesn't involve, let's say, going under the knife? Because a lot of people would like to improve their looks, know that it's something that is more accessible. When I was a kid, putting highlights in your hair was a big deal. You were a bum. And today that's obviously not not a conversation. So what are some things that women who are in their 40s and or in their 50s that are religious, orthodox Jews, they wear their shaitol. Most days, they're not preoccupied with their looks. But once in a while, you look in the mirror and you think, if I could just lift a little here and fix a little here, what are some options that are reasonable? Yeah, I think, so obviously you have uh, non-invasive things you could do like um, Botox and fillers and things like that. If if done tastefully, it could, it could go a long way. And it could give you just a little boost that you're looking for. There are lasers and skin tightening devices that also would give you know, they're not surgical facelifts and things like that, but it, again, may give you a little bit of tightening, a little bit of a boost just to, to, um, to that may be satisfied, satisfying for you. And then surgical, but not necessarily going under like things you could do under local anesthesia, like an upper eyelid blepharoplasty, upper eyelid lift. If someone has a little extra skin on the upper eyelid, you know, that's something that could be done while you're awake under local anesthesia doing small area liposuction, like some people 
they feel like they have a little extra fat underneath their chin and neck. Removing that using liposuction could be done under a wig. So those are, I would say, some more minor procedures. I think that, as I mentioned, like upper eyelid or even that, you know, there's some patients who I'll tell them I could do it awake and they want to be put to sleep. So, mm-hmm. you know, everyone has a different level right. of comfort. Right. But not everything has to be a three days in the hospital. It really could be. an. No, no. I mean, I don't do any of my surgery in the hospital unless there's a, you know, really specific reason to have to be done. I mean, any in cosmetic surgery, in plastic surgery, you know, this is elective surgery. So you need to be healthy. You need to be you need to be not smoking. You need to be do blood work. Day. And yeah, you have to be yeah. Yeah, fit. Yeah, mm-hmm. This is, you have to be, you know, a good candidate from a medical standpoint. So, you know, this is all outpatient surgery and an outpatient surgery center. And there are very few things that, you know, I have patients stay overnight with a nurse at a hotel and there's really only a couple procedures like a facelift or uh, like a mommy makeover, like a tummy tuck and something like right. that. Other than that, you know, you're you're going home. Did you just call um, it a mommy makeover? <laughs> that's the common terminology that people I never use. heard that. Mommy. Well, if someone has scar tissue, let's say from a number of cesarean like sections, like C sections, is that something that that you can fix? Like external scar tissue, like yeah, a scar. Like, on, yeah, like not on- everything has to be about you know fixing your face. Sometimes a woman has a lot of children; they were all C sections, and and there's something going on that maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I do that all the time. I mean. You know, especially in the Orthodox community, there's uh, women are having a lot of children. You know, they're they're the elasticity of their stomach just over time after many pregnancies, the skin doesn't snap back as well. So you have loose skin, or you have a diastasis of the your muscles are separated from multiple pregnancies, and those are things you know people we call cosmetic surgery, but really it's it's restorative. It's almost reconstructive. You're not. You're just putting things back how they were before you had children, you know, removing the extra skin and tightening up the muscles. Those are something that I do all the time. Oh, that's good to hear. Let me ask you, what about men? I know that Jewish men are not your main source of income. Hasidic men, certainly not. But I imagine hair transplants and there's got to be the, you know, once in a while Jewish guy or not who walks in and says, I, I need to fix th- this, that, or the other. Is that common? Should people be embarrassed if a man is listening and thinks, you know, I really want to get off this, you know, or change this issue that I have. Maybe, you know, my ears are too big, whatever it might be. To the, yeah, I mean, men in general, just the general trend, forget about Jewish, you know, men in general are seeking more and more plastic surgery. Again, it's it's just something people are becoming more aware of. It could be their nose. It could be their ears. As they get older, it could be their chin and neck. Hair? Uh, hair, definitely. And it could be it could be their body. So a lot of men are, you know, losing a lot of weight. Um, they could have a lot of loose skin. So there's they're coming in for for you know very similar procedures that uh, women are coming in for. That's interesting. Um, so yeah, there's definitely at the end of the day you know 95% of my patients are are women but um but men are are definitely coming in more and more okay so if you're listening and you're a guy and there's something you wanted to do you have your doctor now um last question and this is for those of us listening who are probably never going to have plastic surgery you see a lot of people you see a lot of skin conditions you see a lot of patients who maybe didn't take care of themselves properly and now they're dealing with the consequences what is some advice that you can offer um, aging gracefully? <laughs> yeah, I mean, avoiding the sun is sort of the biggest thing. I mean, sun exposure is is probably the number one cause of um, of aging and you know uh, hurting our skin. Do you so see it? Be- do you see it? Like when you're, um, let's say, cutting skin or operating, do you see that some skin is just not as elastic because it's been overexposed to the sun? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially on the face, you know, a lot of uh, fine lines and certain sort of texture is very indicative of a sun damage. So and I think over the course of the last, you know, 20 years, even from when I was growing up, you know, I don't think people are going to tanning salons as as much as they were in the 90s and 2000s. So I think as a whole, we've gotten much more aware of the effects of sun Mm -hmm. on, on aging. 
but yeah, uh, sun avoidance of sun exposure and um, obviously smoking is is really bad for for aging and the skin. And then you having a good skincare regimen, like using some type of um, retinol or retinoid uh, cream, is is very helpful. Yeah, I remember Retin A was very very popular about ten years ago. I don't know what they call it now. Yeah, there's various derivatives of it, but those are things that are good for uh, overall healthy skin and turnover right. of the skin. Well, not everybody has your wife's genes. Some of us have to work a little right. harder. <laughs> Dr. Savetsky, thank you so much. That was very informative. I wish you much hatzlacha in your endeavors. And let me know if you ever do a giveaway where you, you know, give away a facelift. I might just enter that one. <laughs> a girl could dream. <laughs> So there you have it, episode 77 of the Weekly Suite. I hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to leave me a five-star rating and buy yourself a treat in Israel. Head over to my show notes. It's really simple, really easy, and the best way to support my show. So leave me a five-star rating. Tell your friends about the Weekly Squeeze. Stay safe out there, and I will see y'all on Thursday.